From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thanks for being with us. Well, we are starting today's show talking a little bit more about what can only be described as a very stressful helijet flight for the passengers on board and the pilots. The flight made a safe landing after a very rare lightning strike. And Richard Zussman, Global BC reporter based in Victoria, has been covering this story and caught up with one of those who was on that helijet flight earlier today. And Richard is joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. I think anybody that uh, saw your reporting on Global News yesterday and has seen the footage looks at that and thinks, wow, that had to have been just so stressful for everybody on board. What do we know about what happened to that helijet? Yeah, it's just hard to wrap your head around uh, exactly what happened here. So Jason Craig was on board And he describes a situation where he was sitting on the helijet. He has flown this route many times between Vancouver and Victoria. He has done so in bad weather, above the clouds, in rain, and describes seeing a bolt, which we now know is lightning, and hearing a sound, and then all of a sudden hearing huge mechanical rumbling, and then a feeling of falling, like zero gravity. And that lasted about 30 to 60 seconds while he describes, in essence, the helicopter plunging from the air at 4,000 feet down below the cloud line. At this point, they are above the Gulf Islands. And he describes coming out of the clouds and being on his side. So looking to outside the window to his side and being above the trees and water. So the helicopter falling, in essence, sideways. The pilots are then able, with limited um, technical support, because they had lost their navigation system, and they had lost some control of some of the equipment in the helicopter. They were then able to use visuals to correct the helicopter and were able to land it back in Victoria. And Jason described saying he thought they were done, that he right. was going to die. He, he, he texted his fiance that he loved her. And then the reality of getting off the helicopter and looking outside and seeing a big chunk out of part of the helicopter and the router damaged to the point where, where two of the blades are gone. Um, just quite incredible, the work of the pilots. And, and Jason wants to say thank you to them uh, and to Helijet for, for getting him home safe. Uh, because, as you mentioned, they all walked away from this, 14 people, two pilots, 12 passengers. Uh, but based on what happened here, I, I think uh, that was not the likely outcome. And, and that is what's so incredible about uh what Jason is telling today is is, is story of, of survival. And I know you're going to have much more uh, with Jason uh, coming up on uh, the news and on the news hour, but I do want to play just a little bit kind of what, what you were saying, how he described it and, and what he was thinking in that moment. What felt, you know, from our perspective, uh, spiraling down to the ground uh, at a rapid pace. And, and of course, we were socked in with clouds, so it was it was very tough to tell uh, what was left and what was right and, and what was going on. Uh, and and I think we all we all 
pretty quickly realized it was it was serious uh and and it was very very loud so i'm sure the pilots were, were making announcements but but uh you know we were we were all kind of in it at the moment so uh definitely uh definitely felt a rapid descent uh almost almost like a weightless feeling i, I would say uh and and kind of looking around, realizing that that it was continuing, uh, I think a lot of us uh, a lot of us thought that was it. And and like you said, Richard, he he actually, and I'm guessing others on the Helijet too, uh, got his phone out and started texting people. Yeah, and and he described that he was with some colleagues on board, and and he said that almost universally people were messaging, and and I and I talked to him a bit about that timing, like. W- you know, you're in this situation where you're falling and you feel like it's to your death. You know, what are you saying to people? And and his wife, incredibly, or, or girlfriend, um, fiance, fiance, sorry, <laughs> the term, right? Fiance was, was in an ultrasound um, eight months pregnant uh, and he didn't want to scare her. So he just said, I love you. And then got off the helicopter when they landed and they rushed off to meetings and after they finished the first meeting, they sort of thought to themselves, this is himself and his colleagues who were on the Elgin. What are we doing here? <laughs> like, and so they went for lunch and took a ferry home. Not, not quite ready to take that helicopter back home quite yet. And then was able to, to speak to his wife about what had happened. Even this morning when I spoke to him, he was still trying to wrap his head around uh, what had happened and, and, and the, the possible outcomes there. But yeah, just, just, I can't even imagine it, Jill, uh, sending that message to loved ones uh, with the belief that, you know, this is the end. And mm-hmm. and he, he talked about how, you know, you, you hear all the things in the movies and the descriptions of seeing flashes of light before your eyes. He said it was it was calmness. It was it was a relative calm and, and uh, in essence, it sort of was resigned to what was happening. That He had no control over the situation that was unfolding. Even so, you, you got to think, and I think anybody, if you if you fly and if you have any kind of nervousness about flying, you always think, or maybe you try not to, but you do kind of think, what would that scenario be like? And I've, I've never thought of it as being a calm scenario, but that's really interesting <laughs> to hear him uh, describe it that way. Uh, we know that uh, we heard from Helijet yesterday as well, again, uh, just, just commending the pilots that they did such an amazing job. They relied on their training. They were able to, to bring everyone safely uh, to the ground. What happens now? I know the Transportation Safety Board is investigating yeah. because, again, I, I think trans or not translate. Sorry, the um, the Helijet, uh, the head of Helijet said that this is a very rare thing. Yeah, I think twice or three times. What's really interesting, Jill, as I heard um, from an old CBC camera guy, mm-hmm. Doug Curry, who's worked in this industry forever. Mm-hmm. He was on a Helijet in the early 1990s, which was struck by lightning. And in that case, they landed at the Victoria Airport because they lost full power of that aircraft. That may be the only other time this has happened in Helijet's history. There may have been one other. It's extremely rare. We're here now at the terminal. There are still flights running back and forth. The head of Helijet said yesterday that part of what happened here is a testament to the aircraft that they use, that this helicopter uh, is prepared uh, for possible events like this. Uh, that based on how things shook out, it, it the helicopter withstood that blow from the lightning strike. Uh, so the review is underway by the Transportation Safety Board. Uh, the pilots have provided information around what they did, but but it is so clear to everyone that, that their uh, 
their work was an act of, of heroism and, and bravery. They, they used their training and their adrenaline uh, in a situation that they had uh, never experienced to land that helicopter safely. So, yeah, Helijet is, is doing the work that needs to be done uh, to understand, and, and, you know, their hope will be eventually to get this helicopter repaired and back in the air, but the priority now uh, is, is providing support uh, for uh, those pilots and to ensure that they're working with the Transportation Safety Board uh, to give them whatever information they may need about, uh, in essence, this, this freak accident that happened uh, 4,000 uh, feet in the air. Yeah, and yeah, and, you're, and I'm glad you uh, reminded uh, just how high, uh, what, what uh, level the, the helijet flies at. That's also pretty reassuring that it, it, even though it's only happened twice, both times it's ended in a positive way with, with the uh, pilots being able to get to the helijet to the ground. I, I know there are questions too, and I think the, the head of helijet uh, addressed this yesterday saying they wouldn't normally fly if they thought there was lightning or yeah. there were signs of lightning, but there were no signs of that yesterday. No, and you and I have taken Helijet and Arbor Air and all these aircrafts back and forth between Victoria and Vancouver lots. I've been on this thing you know, dozens of times. Uh, they are extremely <laughs> cautious around the weather conditions. And we know the weather changes very quickly through that strait between Victoria and Vancouver, but there was no lightning in the forecast. They would not have gone up there if they... Uh, had seen lightning uh, in that vicinity of the flight path. And uh, it, it, in essence, caught them off guard. They, they fly, unlike Harbor Air, Helijet is prepared to fly uh, because of their navigation systems through the clouds, uh, through the rain. Uh, but lightning is a situation where if they see it uh, in the forecast, if they see it on the radars, uh, they do not fly uh, those um, Aircrafts and 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 we we both know they often get cancelled, uh, and because of safety and and it just came to the fact that this this was a surprise this this weather event, uh, the lightning strike uh, came as a surprise and and forced these pilots into this position where they had to use uh, their training and skills here. Well, what an amazing uh, thing that, uh, again, it's so great that everybody is okay. And uh, Richard, I look forward to hearing more from Jason Craig and from uh, your interview with him coming up uh, later today and on the News Hour. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time to check in with president and founder of Travel Best Bets, Claire Newell. Claire, good afternoon to you. Thanks so much for being with us again. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. This is a, a really interesting week for travel stories. There's some kind of like great news, bad news, fun news, interesting <laughs> news, and gross news. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, there's something for everyone, for sure. Uh, let's start with this because I, I did not notice or have not noticed the cost of travel going down, but apparently it has. Yeah, it, it, you might not have simply because if you traveled recently, you would have paid for that probably a couple of months ago. Um, but I have noticed it when I look at the pricing and um, Stats Canada's latest report is actually confirming that travel costs did come down 21% in September. Vast majority of, of that, keep in mind, is the domestic routes, simply because there are so many more airlines doing across-Canada flights, Flair, Canada Jetlines, Porter, Lynx, and so that's had a significant impact. But also on the international routes, what I've seen is, of course, um, we, you and I have talked about there's just this huge passenger demand. I guess July and August would have been the, the premium for Europe. I mean, all the flights were packed. The, the rates were really, really high. But 
what we've seen now is that while there is that sharp increase in demand, we are also seeing the carriers build back their existing routes. So they're adding a lot of new flights, which means there's a lot more seats in the market. And that seat capacity is now outpacing the growth in demand on certain routes. Keep in mind, I, I get it. I mean, if there's if it's um, over a long weekend or a holiday or if it's on a really popular route that there is only one flight a day or a couple of flights a week, you're not going to see those fares come down. However, we are in general seeing the prices drop. And as, as StatsCan shows, 21% down in September. Hmm. All right. So that is uh, some good news. Uh, this is a story when you said there were some gross stories out there. And uh, we talked about Paris on the show a couple weeks ago uh, with bed bugs, but bed bugs when traveling as well. Yeah, and this was really kind of shocking to me. Um, I, first of all, I have to tell you that whenever I go to a hotel, the first thing I do is actually check the corners of the, the mattress. So I do this notoriously myself before I unpack anything. But what has happened is the union that represents flight attendants at United Airlines, Alaska Airlines, Frontier Airlines, and some others, has outlined in a memo to their members to make sure that they pack a flashlight and gloves, and it's for inspecting for bed bugs. So obviously there's an outbreak. I, I just What this tells me is that if you haven't been doing it, you should be. What you're looking for it's not so much the moving bugs. You might see small little, like they're lit, they're tiny, and they might be dead. But what you're looking for is the remnant. Um, uh, they are kind of, it's kind of an orangey, dark orangey black kind of um, residue. And it's usually in the corner. So under, if there's a couch or a chair in the room that's got pillows, you want to lift the pillow and just see the corners of it because that's kind of where they live. But notoriously on mattresses and if you just pop up the corners of the 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 sheets you'll be able to tell right away and then you move rooms or if it's in multiple rooms you move hotels yeah yeah you don't want to be uh, doing that and and i'm guessing too like with flight attendants that are staying in hotels on layovers uh, they don't want to be exposed to them or bring them back onto the planes no once you get it somewhere especially on a plane it's just it's so hard to get rid of and if you bring them back home it's the same it's just one of those things where you have to put everything in a hot dryer and it, your, the bag has to go out, you know, it, it has to be put in a garbage bag and then left outside or in a freezer. It's, there's just so much involved to getting rid of them, like permanently getting rid of them. All right. So, so that's a, a bit of an update there. Let's also talk about carry-on baggage. I know we've talked about this many, many times, fees, people trying to walk on with more than what you're allowed to. But what's happening in Europe when it comes to carry-on bags? Oh, this was so interesting to me because here in North America, we're having to pay for checked baggage fees. So we might get our personal item on some of these low-cost carriers, but you actually have to pay, if you're, even if you're taking a carry-on bag. And in Europe, there's, just, there's been um, some uproar in European Parliament that they're calling for the airlines to scrap those fees for a reasonable size carry-on, saying that, you know what, that's like... It's abusive to an abusive practices um, and that people it's a, like a, a consumer's right to actually have necessary items with them. So I'm going to watch this really closely. If that actually happens in Europe, it will likely follow to North America. Um, usually it's like 
six months later. That's what we see. <laughs> Europe kind of sets the trend. But if they think that it's a consumer's right to have the basic necessities with them in a carry-on, that would mean that the companies like EasyJet and Ryanair would not be able to charge you. You'd be able to have a personal item plus that carry-on bag. So it is something that we will watch really closely, and I'll advise you on. All right. And what else is going on? The car-sharing car partnership, this yeah. is a, a new thing. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Turo? Uh I have not, no. Okay, so I hadn't heard of it. So think Airbnb for cars. And my husband was the one who told me about Turo the first time. He goes, oh, yeah, everyone's talking about this. And it's, um, it's interesting because Toronto Pearson, which I have a son now in Toronto, so this is something that I'm looking at quite seriously, they've announced a first-of-a-kind partnership between Turo and Toronto Pearson Airport. So Turo is going to be... YYZ, which is uh, Pearson's first uh, sharing car sharing partner. What it means is that you can go to the app and you can have your vehicle waiting in a designated pickup and drop-off spot at the airport. So local Turo hosts can just park their vehicles. It'll be Terminal 1 or Terminal 3 parking garages or the value lot. And then travelers can locate their vehicles in the parking area through this remote check-in to the reservation and it's all within minutes of arriving at the airport. So it's going to be very convenient. And the rates, because car rentals have been so expensive lately. I remember uh, we rented, I don't often rent vehicles, but we did rent one when I was in Ireland a couple of weeks ago. So I know it has its place, but, and a lot of people do it, but it's been expensive. And so having a kind of a peer-to-peer car sharing program I looked at the prices at Pearson, and they're incredible. And they have all sorts of awesome vehicles like BMWs and Teslas and all sorts for the less than you would pay if you were renting a car through a regular car rental company. So it's something to look into. Well, it is Wednesday afternoon and talking with Claire Newell. And Claire, before the break, we talked a bit about bed bugs. unfortunately, how they are becoming more prevalent in some places, how travel, according to Stats Canada, is in some scenarios getting cheaper. But let's now talk about some airlines that are expanding. And one that is of particular note is WestJet and word that WestJet is going to be flying to Iceland. Yeah, so we don't know when. We don't know which aircraft and, and which airports um, that it will be flying from. I would guess that it will be from their Calgary big base. However, the CTA, the Canadian Transport Agency, has just greenlit a license for WestJet to operate scheduled international service between Canada and Iceland. So that's good news. It's been a really popular destination for at least a decade now and having more seats into the marketplace to that destination just means it might be cheaper for us all. And even if it is out of Calgary, a quick connection Vancouver to Calgary for us and then continuing on to Iceland is a pretty slick way to do it. All right. So we'll simply, we will be watching that one for sure. I know we started off talking about uh, vacations getting uh, cheaper or less expensive, and that could be the case for Hawaii. Yeah, this was interesting to watch out. There's been a lot of different uh, reports about this because of a variety of factors. There could be a reduction in costs next year to vacations in Hawaii. It's been very, very expensive over the last little while for both airfare and uh, accommodation. But this is just the main reason will be supply and demand. Like we talked about, there's going to be flights in there. But um, it, it because of the wildfires, because of 
more more seats into the marketplace, but also because other areas, including the areas of Tahiti, um, Papayete, Bora Bora, they've seen a significant decrease in price, and it's forcing Hawaii to kind of keep pace to attract tourists to the area. So who knows? We'll see. But they say that demand and the cost will soon come into a better alignment in Hawaii than it's been, making it more affordable to visit. Mm, interesting. And uh, going a little further than Hawaii, for people uh, that uh, are looking for uh, more of an exotic vacation, a new airport in Cambodia. Yeah, so this is, um, for many people, uh, the area of Siem Reap is a, a bucket list destination to be able to see Angkor Wat, the Angkor Archaeological Complex, which is spectacular. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it's always been a little bit difficult to get to because there's no there has been no airport in um, CM Reap. So they're going to be, they actually opened one in the first flight that went in, went in on October the 16th. So it's only about 40 kilometers from the protected area of Angkor Wat. So I, you know, it's, it's just, I hope more airlines will, out of Vancouver, will start to fly into it or via a major hub like a Hong Kong or a Korea or a Thailand can, and then connect into that airport because it makes it so much easier to get to. Oh yeah, excellent. And like you said, so many people have that on the list. Uh, let's look at one more yeah. story before we get to the deals. And Well, a couple of things happening with Delta Airlines. Yeah, a couple. One of them is that they will be flying into the new airport in the area of Tulum. So lots of Canadians love to go over and go basically from Isla Mujeres which is north of Cancun. That's an area that's really been built up. Some will go to the island of Cozumel. Others will stay in Cancun. And then a vast majority end up going to the Riviera Maya, which is Playa del Carmen and that area that stretches all the way down to Tulum. But when you fly into Cancun, it can be like 90 minutes to get to Tulum area. And they're opening their own airport. Then that's going to be starting um, this December and Delta has just announced that they are going to be flying some flights out of Atlanta into Tulum. That will start on March the 28th. I'm really hoping that some Canadian airlines will also fly into that airport. It'll just take a little bit of the, the, the pressure off of the Cancun airport, which can get really, really busy. The other thing that Delta has started, it's kind of a more of a tech thing, but they're enabling personalized entertainment seatback screens. It's only going to be on select older generation Airbus a321 aircraft but it's super cool it basically works like your own smart tv like the screens are going to remember where flyers left off on a movie or a tv show from previous flights um it'll show favorite shows it'll suggest shows that you might like so you have to be um, one of their sky miles members but uh because um, when you do that you get their free wi-fi it's free to join i totally recommend if you are going to be taking a delta flight that you take the time and join their SkyMiles membership to get all of that. All right. Lots uh, lots happening there. Let's get people yeah. traveling. What deals do you have for us today? Well, I wanted to give this one. This is um, uh, at Chipi de los Cabos, Mexico, November the 2nd. It's only one date. Now, there are dates after that, right through until kind of mid-December for $100 more. But on that one date, Aaron, seven nights in a four-star beachfront, all-inclusive resort, six ninety nine. The taxes are 564 And I did want to share one to Hawaii, to Honolulu, November 23rd through until December 12th. A great deal. Now, this is a, um, a really, really popular three-star property. For those who know it, it's the Ohana East. 
So it's uh, just a couple of blocks from the beach. It's Airfare and Seven Nights Hotel, eight ninety nine. The taxes of two seventy one. And then lots of people are booking their seven night Alaska cruises, and they're taking advantage of the early prices because they go up substantially as you get closer. But seven night Alaska cruises, basically, there's dates between May twelfth and September the fifteenth. Seven night cruise with a fifty U.S. dollar onboard credit for five ninety nine. Sorry. Five seventy nine is the lowest. Taxes are three oh nine. Keeping in mind that the August, uh, late July and August dates do tend to be a little bit more money. But um, if you go in May or you go in September, you're going to get that lower price. And then finally, uh, a great deal if you're looking and you're a snowbird and you want some sunshine, Costa del Sol region of southern Spain, and it's a nice four star property. It's a one bedroom apartment. Mm. March the sixth. It includes the airfare. 20 nights, so almost three weeks in that four-star, one-bedroom apartment with your airport transfers, $21.99, the taxes of $8.30. There's lots that are really popular, like the French Riviera, Malta, um, the Algarve region of Portugal. But at the moment, this one seems to be selling like hotcakes. All right, lots of great deals and all of that information on the website. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Talk to you next week. Well, some new numbers have been released by Hunger Count 2023. This was the report that came out showing that food bank visits have increased about 78% since 2019. And relentless inflation, a broken social safety net being blamed, just a couple of reasons that the CEO of Food Banks Canada has said this is why we're seeing such a big increase. Many people who never thought they would need to use a food bank now walk through those doors for the first time. Well, what else are we finding out from this report? Joining me now is Richard Mattern, the Food Banks Canada Research Director, also author of this report. Richard, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you. Uh, it seems like a very big increase that uh, the visits to food banks up 78%. What else does this report tell us about why that number is so large? Well, it's showing that the, that the impact of the cost of living and the affordability crisis is having on people, not just with low incomes, but people with average or middle incomes. So uh, you're seeing two things going on. You're seeing uh, people with uh, very low uh, incomes because of provincial social assistance needing a food bank. And then there's people who are working poor who are seeing more and more of who might be having slightly higher incomes, but uh, they were on the edge before and now they just cannot make ends meet. And when when you were putting the report together and looking at this, for, so I understand that this was studying and looking at more than 4,700 food banks and community organizations in Canada. Uh, how, how were you able to kind of get that information and see and be able to compare year over year? So we uh, collect this information. We conduct this survey every March of, of each year so we can do a comparative snapshot. So it's a point-in-time snapshot of, of March of a given year. And so we've been doing this, you know, for, for many years, and uh, we've been collecting numbers in this way uh, for at least 10, 15 years. And by looking at these trends, uh, we can definitely see changes in, let's say, demographic uh, composition of clients. We can see the numbers, of course. Uh, we show some trends in the report uh, where it went high during the recession, then went down, and then um, dipped a bit during the pandemic because of the COVID benefits, and then just exploded with the, with the cost of living crisis. 
And, and and you could see that. I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up because looking at the numbers, I think it maybe isn't a huge surprise when one of the findings being that food bank use rose to the highest level so, or it, it continued to rise during the pandemic. But the fact that it keeps getting higher and higher, is that can we kind of pinpoint that to the cost of food and inflation? So there is definitely a, a decoupling, as we call it in the report, of, of unemployment rates and, and food bank usage. They used to trend closely together. And now, you know, as the, when the report was, was uh, being compiled, we still had historically low unemployment rates. But then we also had the highest food bank visits that we've ever seen, uh, food bank usage. So the key reason that we're noting for that is, is the decrease in purchasing power. So while people's incomes, even if they're average or, or they're, they're middle income, um, the purchasing power that they have is, is decreasing every month as inflation keeps going up with the basic needs like food, uh, housing, fuel, and, and other costs like that. So um, this decrease in purchasing power and, um, you know, no relief in sight has had this ongoing impact. And then People are, are, I think, having more difficult ways of, uh, of they, they can't cope, and it's harder to find ways to cope. And and one of the top reasons, and I was looking at one of the findings, uh, kind of to what you just said, one of the reasons being low wages or not enough hours of work. And is that the real shift then from in the past that might have been unemployment? Unemployment would have been or uh, low social assistance rates, which is still one of the top reported reasons. But because you're having um, more people coming to food banks who are working and employment is their main source of income. Uh, one of the key things they mention repeatedly is uh, the wages are too low. Um, often what they're saying is they don't have enough hours at work. So while their hourly wages might be higher, they, they just maybe have 20 hours a week that are available as opposed to the, the full time 40. So and then the precariousness and, and the unstable type of hours. So that's that's a lot of what we're hearing in regards to those who are employed accessing food bank. What does that tell us, do you think, then? And I know this is included in the report, but if we look at kind of the history of food banks and the fact that they were never supposed to be permanent, this was supposed to be a temporary a temporary means to help people. Um, and, and the fact that they're being used now for, for people that are employed, it's not it's not something that that uh, is being used as more of a temporary source, that it's being accessed by so many people. What does that tell us uh, about why we're seeing that kind of shift in the clientele and the need for these? It's showing that we need to uh, expand our social safety net. There's there's uh, some significant gaps in, in who, who are helping or who are not helping. Um, and one of the key recommendations in our report is, is more support for working people who are working on low income um, or have significant gaps in income. So we recommend EI reforms to be more encompassing of those with part-time or, or contract work. Uh, we expanding the, the current types of tax, tax benefits. Uh, so, so more working people can access them, and then having universal benefits like dental and drug, and child subsidized childcare for people who might be technically over uh, a, a low income level, but are still having a hard time making ends meet. So, it's it's about our social assistance and social policies um, coming up and matching up with the reality of the times and what we're experiencing. And is it oversimplifying it then to also look, and we've certainly been talking a lot about food prices in these past few months and why food prices are so high. Is it oversimplifying it, do you think, to look specifically at that or to to kind of single that out as that being the main reason? 
it's well, food prices and, and food inflation is definitely an important factor that that impact many people with low incomes. Uh, they spend a greater portion of of their limited incomes on food, and even moderate rates of food inflation, they'll, they're going to feel it when they go to the grocery store. And it's also extremely difficult to plan. Um, for for the inflationary increases you see with food because of of the frequency that we need to shop for food, whereas other costs like rent and so forth you can better plan for, um, even though those are very high as well. So that that's significant. But what we're talking about here too is is you know that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, as far as the affordability issues that people are are facing. And if they're already spending uh, so much of their income on other necessities like rent and, and fuel and so forth, uh, food just pushes them over the edge. And so that's, it's a multi-pronged approach we need. What does it tell us, though, as well, about food banks themselves in that they are often dependent and relying on donations and they need to make their money stretch as far as they can to make sure they've got uh, products and such on the shelves? And things have shifted as far as what food banks are giving out and becoming healthier and paying more attention to that. So what does this increased demand, do you think, do to the actual food banks as far as putting strains on them? Well, as you mentioned earlier, there's a 78% increase since 2019. Uh, so that demand has increased that much. It's extremely hard to have supply increase at the same rate. It's, it's almost impossible, if not completely impossible, to do that. So food banks themselves are are trying their best. Um, but as we warned in the report, many are, are close to reaching a breaking point. Um, they, uh, the food has been more difficult to procure, um, and many many food banks they already were purchasing more of their inventory. Some are spending upwards of million a million dollars in a year to purchase the food that has to supplement the lack of donations. So they're struggling as well, and that's why we're sounding the alarm in this report that some of these longer term and structural issues have to change because we can't keep going on this trend. All right, Richard Mattern, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for talking more about this today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.